So welcome to the Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today we're joined by the CEO of the JSC, Leila Faree. Um, welcome, Leila, to a nice winter's morning. Hi, Ralph, and uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, so, I mean, we were talking earlier and um, we were just, just discussing the lockdown, the weather. I mean, I'm in Cape Town, so I haven't got a clue what it's like up in Joburg. How's it going up there? Well, right now it's early morning and we're, it looks like we're about to have an absolutely gorgeous day. Um, I have to say, as much as I love Cape Town, um, nothing beats the weather in, in winter in Johannesburg. Even when I was in Sydney, I hankered after the uh, Joburg weather patterns. So we're very blessed here from a weather perspective. For sure. I, I, I always know when we've got events up in Joburg, it's normally in the day. It's so beautiful. But it's that, that brisky morning and brisky evening that you've got to watch out for, I think. Get those coats out yeah. for that time. Yeah. And, and how's, it, how's it exercising and getting that routine at the moment? Is that because... I think we get the sun a little bit later in the morning, so we were a bit challenged. I was like creeping out of bed at like just before seven and trying to get out there in the light to do some running and cycling. Have you had the same sort of challenges? Or? Well, yes, yes, we have. So so I think lockdown has been a, a real challenge for everybody. I, I do rock climbing and mountaineering, and, and so there was very little of that to be had in, in my little um, home. And um, ironically, all of my rock climbing friends in Australia had challenged the group to creating um, climbing videos. And so I think what the lockdown has, has forced everybody to do is to become a lot more innovative and creative about how they substitute not only exercise, but their, their everyday lifestyle. And so I found myself... Uh, making videos of me climbing up walls and trees around my house and uh, climbing around the dining room table and doing some very inelegant um, climbs. And, and that was really good to keep my, my muscle memory going. Unfortunately, since the lockdown has eased and now that we're able to, um, we, we were able to, to exercise from, as we know, 6 till 9 a.m. And I was cycling and, and at times it was um, minus four degrees mm -hmm. um, when we were going through dips and dark. And, and so that was quite a challenge and, and really required people to dig deep, I think, and, and to commit to getting themselves active. It's quite easy to... Um, become quite lethargic during this period. Yeah, I had the same problem. It was, it was uh, th those biscuits look extra nice suddenly. Um, and the fridge so is I, all I'm, too close. It's too close. So I, 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 had, I think I had the same thing. And um, one of the things I realised, I needed some goals. and I needed to reinvent the habits for the situation. So I started scribbling down some goals and sort of getting some purpose going again. But, I mean, do, do you have a goal in terms of rock climbing and, and mountaineering once this all sort of eases up? Is there a favourite place that you're thinking of going to? Yes. So, um, as we were chatting earlier, one of my favourite places is New Zealand. I've spent many, many hours trekking around um, South Island and ice climbing those mountains, Mount Cook, etc. 
Um, and so my, my goal was actually to climb Iger with my Australian friend Di in um, August. And unfortunately, we've obviously had to put that on hold. So we'll probably try and do that next year this time. And my next goal at the moment is hopefully, um, if lockdown eases, to go and climb some uh, frozen uh, waterfalls in Canada and that'll likely be in Banff, and that'll be in the beginning of next year. So I genuinely do need to start getting my um, body strength and my hand strength back on track because I've been uh, hopelessly um, uh, inadequate throughout the last sort of 73 days of lockdown. Um, it's always important to have a goal and, and to commit to it, and particularly if you commit to, to doing something with other people. It's always very easy when you wake up and the alarm clock goes to opt out if you're on your own. But if you've got people waiting, whether it's cycling or running or climbing, um, is it, it kind of commits you and, and puts you on the hook. And, and I found that that's been throughout my life. The most important thing is is to commit to, to goals with other people. Um, and that really keeps you honest. So, I mean, the rock climbing is quite an interesting thing. I mean, there's a lot of analogies around that. but um, I watch those videos of those guys rock climbing, and just talking about it, my hands are sweating. So I, I'm I'm fearful of heights. I really am, and I do mountain biking and all sorts of adventure stuff. But I still get if I look over the edge, I'm very very apprehensive and nervous. And I sort of wonder what would make someone want to to, to fling their body on the side of a mountain and try and climb up something that's so dangerous. What's 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 driving that? energy ralph it's it's actually quite an irony because um and and i think it's it's largely uh, for me it's been a lesson in trust i i'm actually quite terrified i do cycle um but i'm pretty i'm, I'm pretty scared going downhill um and most people pass me and, and it's been my goal to try and learn to be a bit more confident downhill and, and that speed terrifies me. And, and in fact, being on skis and going down, I, 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 I've, I've crashed a couple of times. And, and most times I go skiing, I come back on, uh, on crutches, um, unfortunately, with broken um, or torn, broken bones or torn ligaments, which is quite embarrassing. But um, that, that's how it goes. But rather ironically, when I'm clinging to a rock face and, and sometimes in, in very exposed areas, um, I've climbed up a, a um, sea stack which is is basically like a, a rock totem pole that comes out of the sea in Tasmania called Moai and it's incredibly exposed and because it's in the sea um, the wind is uh, the wind factor is quite high and it can be quite slippery so your handholds can slip but ultimately you know I don't do free soloing like Alex Honnold did where he he, he climbed Yosemite uh, a very important peak in Yosemite with no ropes Ultimately, all you need to do is teach yourself to fall and teach yourself to learn to trust the rope. And the first couple of times I did it, um, my legs looked like a, a singer sewing machine um, bouncing <laughs> up and down. It was absolutely nail-bitingly terrifying. And, and as, I, as, I, as I became more familiar, I learned to trust the rope. And in fact, I did a, a what you call a lead climbing course where, where you go up first and you are not attached from the top by a, by a rope, but you hook the rope in as you go, which means if you fall, you 
could damage or or it could be fatal, damage yourself or it could be fatal. And we actually had to learn to fall. And he he left lots of rope uh, loose, which means that you fall very far and the jerk on your back and your neck is quite substantial. And it was the most terrifying thing to fall off consciously fall off the off the um, rock face and since then I, I'm happy to jump off any rock face and belay myself down and climb back up as long as I trust my belayer so it's really important that the person that's holding the other side of the rope knows what they're doing and that they they're not a daydreamer because um, if you fall they need to um, they need to hold you and make sure that the rope doesn't slip through through the device so for me, it's been it's been a journey of of trust, um, and um, and and a journey of um, learning to to incrementally expose yourself to the unfamiliar and to things that you you don't know and don't understand, and very quickly your risk appetite increases. And what was incredibly terrifying in the beginning. Um, you look back at and sort of scratch your head and, and wonder how on earth you were so scared. But that said, I am still terrified going down a hill on a bicycle. <laughs> we can teach you. So I, I do, I do steerers. So I've, I've, I've thrown myself off mountains in, in Maui and all over Cape Town. So happy to, happy to show you. Um, <laughs> but, but I don't know if I'm happy to go up rock climbing with you, to be honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to reciprocate. Okay, well, I'll try. I'll try. My hands might be a bit sweaty, but um, I'll I try. I assure you it's much scarier for me to go down a bicycle hill than for you to climb up a rock face. It just looks worse than it is. <laughs> There's a saying, though, that, that I don't know if anyone told you, but it really is when you're going downhill on a bike, it's about getting, they say, get your ass off the back of the seat. So it's almost putting your your chest on your saddle. And what it's doing is just putting your weight backwards as opposed to forwards. Yeah, I think it's the physiological weight balance, but also your line of sight. And that was something I learned when I did a, a car driving course. If you if you look further ahead, um, you go a lot faster. And I think that might be true of leadership, ironically, is, is your line of sight is really important. If you're looking, you do need to understand where your next step is or where your next rotation on your bicycle wheel is. But if you're looking sort of 20 or 30 meters ahead, you go much faster than if you're looking five meters ahead. Uh, and that was quite an interesting lesson for me. It's the same for running as well, though, down those hills. I um, have the same issue as well. So isn't it funny, the, these analogies with our lifestyle and things we enjoy to to business? But, I mean, you are very well-respected and professional businesswoman. And for me, it's intriguing to look at sort of where you've come from. And I sort of asked myself, what drove you to throw yourself at, in terms of academia first to learn and then your career to take these big risks and to take these big opportunities? Hmm. I think the I think my career and what what is possibly visible to the public um, and things that I may have achieved and and failures and lessons that I may have learned are, are all really a function probably of my upbringing and the story that I have to tell in my personal life. And I come from a, a long line of, of women. Um, my great my grandmothers have, have their roots in farming and lived through 
um, managing farms single-handedly um, during um, the um, Anglo-Boer War, for example. And, and my career and everything, my wiring and my DNA and my approach to life is very much predicated, I suppose, on the lessons that I've learned both from my mother and my grandmother. And, and I'd say there are probably three lessons that are, are really valuable and, and have, have seen me through difficult and, and periods of growth, difficult times and periods of growth. And the first I'd say is, is the power of imagination and curiosity and the willingness to grow and develop and learn. And so if, if I have a curious mind and I, I have a desire to learn, and that did translate into my academic career, um, which uh, you know, which which saw me studying for for many many years um, on and off throughout my life, but it's much more than academia and and formal education. It's about the spirit of inquiry and wanting always to ask questions and understand why. And so that power of imagination and curiosity has has been a very profound driving force in everything that I've done, and then. I'd say the, the second lesson that I've learned, and, and these are lessons that I learned watching my both my grandmother and my mother rather than necessarily hearing what they have to say. And it was about endurance and fortitude in the face of adversity. Um, and what I learned from them is, is really to back yourself and to be confident in yourself and never to give up. Uh, I've always had endurance and I've always had fortitude, but interestingly, I never, I, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't as confident um, as I should have been as a woman growing up in society. And um, that was, it was really important for me to, um, to, to teach myself to become more confident. And I found over the years, if I look back over my career and my personal life, um, I, I wish that I had more, more self-confidence when I was younger than I do now. And and so that, that was a really important message and, and something that is has probably translated quite explicitly into my um, uh, very, um, very passionate mountaineering and, and climbing career in my personal life. And ironically, those lessons of mental fortitude and of endurance that I started with were expanded on while I was climbing and, and I've experienced some some uh, difficulties in my mountaineering career with some high altitude mountains where on some instances I nearly failed and some of them were potentially um, compromising to my life and um, yet I was able to get through those and and as as I um, I, I remember when I climbed um, the highest mountain in Antarctica, which is Mount Vinson, and um, on the day we had to summit, and um, one there were four of us, three four, four climbers and one guide, three men uh, um, and and myself, and we got uh, sort of half an hour into the trek, and it was quite a steep initial uphill. And we stopped at a watering hole and the temperature was minus 37 degrees. So, so it's, it's really very, very uninhabitable um, uh, context. And um, one of the guys turned around and then um, I, I was in the stage of should I, shouldn't I? 
I had asthma and I'd had quite quite bad flu, which was starting to go into my chest. And it was really touch and go as to whether I was going to be okay to go up in altitude. And I decided to dig in and keep going. And um, I, I remember distinctly having this warring sort of battle in my head of whether I could make it or not. And, and it was it was genuinely um, one of the one of the most difficult periods in my um, mountaineering career, and it was it was really ironic that um, that at the end I was the weaker of the three by a long margin physiologically. The other guys were much stronger than me, but yet the um, altitude has uh, does have a, a rather counterintuitive impact on on one's physiology sometimes and. As we got to the final um, push to get to the summit, um, I suddenly had my second breath and my second wind and was able to get up. And um, so these things are, are, are really profoundly um, uh, profound in the, the lessons that they, that they teach you. Um, and, um, and, and there is a, you know, there's a there's a quote that that Mandela always uses, um, and this is very central to to who I am. And, and he says, there there is no passion to be found in playing small, in living a life that is less than the life you are capable of of living. I'll say it just once more because it's quite quite long. There is no passion to be found in playing small, in living a life that is less than the life you are capable of living. And so in, in my mind, I, I always kind of, yes, yes, I always come back to this, this whole concept that every day, on average, everyone has seventeen to 20,000 breaths a day. That, that's, that's the standard allocation. Nobody gets double that or half that. And, and my question to myself, and I suppose my challenge to everybody who might be listening would be, what are you doing about your breaths every day? How are you spending your 17,000 breaths? Are you waking up in the morning and, and smashing that alarm clock and turning over? Or are you making having a go and, and making something of your life? So that was the second lesson is endurance and fortitude. And then the last lesson that I've learned from, from my, my mother and my grandmother is the lesson of forgiveness. And um, I, I think that in many ways, forgiveness is an essential component in a leadership role. And particularly, it's, it's set me um, particularly in, in, in good stead in my role heading up the stock exchange. The stock exchange is often the lightning rod of, and, and rightly or wrongly, um, of many um, incidents that happen, and some of which are out of our control, and some of which perhaps are, are confidential and technical and difficult to explain in a public domain because of privacy requirements, you know, like insider trading, etc. And mm. um, so often um, you have to face into some quite, quite challenging um, uh, situations. And um, especially on Twitter, I think you need to develop a sense of forgiveness and not to personalize um, things. And, and I think particularly for women, we, we are very sensitive and we take others' comments very personally. And uh, we always need to listen and be open to what people are saying, but we also need to do so in a spirit of forgiveness. 
And so those are, are probably the things that have grounded me and have in some ways driven me to do what I've done and to maybe go out and climb some mountains or do as much as I can academically or work as hard as I can in the workplace. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it's really interesting, I think, that your your story and it seems that you also, you're playing it forward as well. It looks, when I was looking at some of the things you've done, you sort of worked quite intimately in a woman's network as well about working with women and helping them to be better. So it's, so these, these values and these principles you've sort of brought forward to other women groups. Is that a big passion for you to help other women and develop them? It absolutely is a, an important passion for me. And and I think that um, it, it is important to be able to use your convening power and your influence on, on a public stage. And I, I do do that. But for me, what's profoundly important is on a one-on-one -on -one basis to play, pay it forward and to make a contribution to other people's lives individually and so I, I have women that I, I mentor, uh, and typically I tend to um, mentor people who are previously disadvantaged and um, younger women who have a runway ahead of them. And when I moved from South Africa I, to Australia, I spent three years in Australia, I was having video conferences with some of the women that I um, mentor um, and I, I actually mentored a, a woman um, uh, called Angelina, and um, I had to present. I was I was heading up the card division for Standard Bank at the time, and I presented to a huge hall of call center people. And we were going through some very difficult economic times, and and the call center were working incredibly hard. Um, and this woman came up to me afterwards, and and she said to me, I. Um, I am a call center agent in the collections call center and I work the night shift. Now, being in the call center is incredibly stressful. Working night shift is really hard. Working in collections is extreme. It's an exceptionally soul-destroying um, area. And um, it was an irony that I mentored and walked a path with her during that period. And um, she was actually studying during the day and she was also using the funds from her call center to pay for her brother's um, education and she she was basically bringing him up and it was such an irony that I learned so much more from her in those mm -hmm. mentoring sessions and and came away a much richer person um, than I had than I than than I think she learned from me and and so I think we often go into these relationships um, thinking that we're going to be giving and and it's it's ours to to direct and and to to, to um, teach and and sometimes inquiry is is more powerful than advocacy and sometimes listening is is much more powerful than telling and so so I do think that um, we have an obligation um, privilege obligates. I think that we, um, as business women, are privileged in a society with many, many underprivileged women who have either not had the opportunity to educate themselves or haven't had 
the opportunity to build their career. And um, certainly I know if I look back on my career, it's those breaks that I can allocate to mentors and to sponsors of mine that made me what I am today. And many, many of those breaks were, were given to, be, to me by women. There were many um, very um, insightful and broad-minded um, male uh, leaders that I've had um, who have supported me, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, so, so I really do think it's, it's our obligation um, when we come from a point of privilege to, to stop, to take the time to listen to people and to pick them up and to help them along their way. It's, it is so profound, right? Um, and, I, and I see it also with charity as well. It's not just with time and energy. It's also one of the biggest things with these foundations is that they see they, they get far more fulfillment from the giving um, and the gratitude back, really. So um, I, I've listened to a number of interviews with you, and I think it's almost like a South African story. So I was born in New Zealand and I've lived in Australia a little bit and I went to boarding school in the UK. And so, but it, it seems to be the question that everybody asks everyone that's living in Australia or the UK or the States is, you know, why did you come back? But I mean, the, the, the one funny story I have is a next door neighbor that, that was moving to Australia. And they are professionals. I think they work for PwC, and they they waited a year and a half to get a visa to go to Australia. Yeah. And I said, oh, and they, and they packed up the house and they were leaving. I said goodbye and you know, we'll miss you and all that sort of stuff. And um, they sold everything. I said, have you been there before? They said, no, but we've seen all the pictures. <laughs> and <laughs> no, we've seen all the pictures. We've got relatives there, and we find anyway. Ten days later, they came back, and I said, what happened? Wow. And I said, no, no, it just wasn't for us. We didn't, we didn't like it. And I know that there seems to be a sense that many South Africans go there and they, the culture doesn't fit. But, there, I mean, there are some great things about Australia. There's great things about the UK. And there's great things about South Africa. And is, is your mind not so much one is better than the other or one is worse than the other, but the experience and the exploration, it's almost like, you know, taking on a mountain from each continent is more exciting than just doing the same continent every time? Yeah, Ralph, in fact, I uh, I wish that I had um, lived in, in more countries than I have. Um, and when I moved to Australia, the idea was to, A, give my children who were entering the world of work at that time and sort of at the tail end of university, uh, give them an opportunity to experience a new culture and immerse themselves in a, in a new way of, of living and, and working and just expose themselves to di diverse thinking. And um, I, I absolutely love my time abroad and, and I love Australia. It's a very, very beautiful country, much more beautiful than I expected. And the people are authentic and very in tune with nature, and, and I've got some very, very special friends there. Um, so the opportunity to come back um, came as, as quite a shock. I, I had no intention of coming back at the time. And there were, there were probably two drivers that brought me back. The first was the opportunity. I'm, I'm kind of at the tail end of my career. I'm over 50 now, so I'm not, I'm not in that building stage, and I'm probably not... 
looking good for your age, I must tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Al. Nothing's working. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll attribute that to the climbing. <laughs> you should try it. Um, so I, I'd say that um, that the first sort of motivator to come back was really to to make a contribution that that perhaps would be a little bit bigger and better than I would have been able to make in any other country. Firstly, because it's the country of my birth. And secondly, because the role of the CEO of the stock exchange just gives you an opportunity to influence and to make a difference in areas that really count. Things like sustainability, things like inclusive growth, um, things like expanding the retail um, uh, savings rate, making a, a market and creating an opportunity for small and medium enterprises to raise capital. All of those initiatives I'm deeply involved in and I probably would not have had an opportunity to do at the same level as, as I'm doing now. And then the next was really just um, probably in, 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 in light of the curiosity in me and that, that sort of mountaineering mentality, which is, you know, if you see a mountain, go out and climb it. Um, mm. and, and I really, I just didn't want to get to the, the end of my working career, which will probably go on for quite a few years in, in a new way and not have been able to make a contribution. I think this will probably be either my last or my second last kind of formal line gig. And maybe I'll get into, uh, I might sit on some boards after this, but what I really would like to do in my next career, in my next phase, is to do something that allows me to genuinely give back, um, in whether it's an NGO environment or, or something that is, is not centred or predicated on commercial um, balance sheets and income statements and profitability and giving back to the shareholders. That's a very important part, and I by no means um, do I undermine the importance of the role that the capital economy plays in society. And, and in fact, I'm indeed at the epicenter of that right now. But there is, there is more to, to life than, than a commercial contribution. And, and so I'm looking forward to, to that opportunity. And I'm also taking actively the opportunity to do that in my current role. I, I have a very um, privileged role in um, acting um, as a deputy chair on the United Nations Secretary General's group of 30 chief executives across the world, which is called um, uh, the Global Investors for Sustainable Development, GISD. And um, that is a deep privilege because it gives me a, um, an opportunity to influence at a global level what we are doing about climate change, what we are doing about gender equality, what we're doing about gender, uh, general equality and social aspects, what we're doing about governance and making sure that transparency is at the forefront. So all of these opportunities are, are really what you make of them. And, and it's just so important for me to be able to, to, to give back and to do something that, that is bigger than the boring old average driving profits and and that is certainly a part of my role a very important part of my role but it's not the only part it seems that um i always get a name wrong but the the new prime minister of new zealand not new the current arden. arden yeah my wife you know is uh, in love with her 
Um, and for me, she's setting a different set of values that I think are transforming into companies. And that's that she was looking at growth in New Zealand and she was looking at GDP and she's saying, well, we're not actually going to be making economic decisions based on just GDP. We're going to be looking at the wellness of our citizens. And it seems it's very profound. And, and I'm seeing a, lo- a number of other CEOs taking other social impacts and sustainability into account in, in terms of not just the same old return on investment, return on equity type um, goals and modeling. Are you seeing yeah, the trend across the board or? Absolutely, and, and I'm I'm right behind your wife in um, deeply respecting Jacinda Ardern. Um, I think she she has has completely transformed the approach to leadership, and in fact, I, I think that there are a number of women who have repositioned the role of leadership as a result of COVID. And if you look at what she's done in managing through the crisis, if you look at Angela Merkel's approach. Um, in Germany, um, um, and even um, the Prime Minister um, of Finland, um, Sanna Marin, um, who who has has also made an enormous contribution. Um, I think that the overall difference um, that these women are making is that they put humans at the centre, and um, they think long term and in a sustainable and inclusive way in a way that perhaps many of the other crises like general financial contagion haven't done. And I think because we're facing a common enemy and because this enemy is potentially life-threatening and compromising um, general citizens' lives indiscriminately, it's not like we're sending um, uh, soldiers off to an army where there's a a specific grouping of of people who are potentially compromised by a crisis. Um, It's not like um, we we saw in 2008 where um, regrettably and and devastatingly many people lost their homes, etc. But this is, is at a completely different level. And so I think it calls for a different kind of leader. And I think if you look back over history, you know, there's that that quote, cometh the man, uh, cometh the hour, cometh the man. And if you look at Churchill and the role that he played in leading through the war, he was never a successful leader prior to that. Um, and yet it took a war to, to position him. Yes, exactly. And in the same way, I think we're seeing female leaders in the form of, of prime ministers together with many female economists who, who are also thought leading us through through this crisis. And I think at the, at the end of the day, those leaders who put humanity and, and who put sustainability ahead of short-term commercial goals um, are those leaders who will win. And we're seeing already on the stock exchange the flow and the interest from investors and from fund managers into sustainable development um, companies um, far ex- uh, far exceeding in their growth rate those who are focused on on um, pure uh, commercial benefit and and so I do think that this crisis has reset us and I, I do think that it it's very good. 
um, in the sense that it's um, uh, placing the spotlight on the fault lines that were already there in society and across the world, the global warming, the climate change, the inequality, the, the gross and, and unacceptably and unforgivably high inequality, the racism, those those sorts of those sorts of things in society should should be intolerable. And yet they've persisted. And I, I think it takes a crisis of this nature to um, provide the impetus and to provide the platform on on which female leaders do best and and flourish. And I'm hoping that this is a lesson that we take into the post-COVID world, um, post the crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I think that what we're seeing is that those soft skills of leadership are actually becoming now the habits and the critical skills that leaders need to learn. And I think I've said it before, but but women have it naturally. Those skills, I think, are, are, are a little bit more natural for women. And I think they're more learned for men. So, I mean, you said you had your mother and your grandmother who sort of gave you these values. And obviously that's the importance of, of the upbringing and making sure that you've got not just good mentors in terms of one parent, but but both, really. Um, and it's interesting you talk about short-termism, this this long-term type of thinking. But I, I was also intrigued with your career that when you went to to Australia, that you did a couple of talks around fintech and technology, and you seem to have just got that. And and I suppose when I saw the appointment on the JSC, I was really excited because it looks like those organizations who are doing better at the moment are technology companies. And it looks like those companies and organizations embracing technology are certainly going to be more sustainable. Is that a big goal for you? Do you think that was a big play in terms of the decision of the board to appoint you? Was your enthusiasm for technology? Well, I think that certainly um, it was a very unorthodox thing to to choose somebody from offshore um, to come back to the country. And uh, I can't speak for the board, but I, I suspect that um, the important aspects are that capital formation and capital raising is under pressure. And we cannot survive, although we've survived for 133 years, we cannot grow and develop unless we profoundly transform the way we do business. I think that a long range of, of, of vision is, is vitally important. And um, technology and the galloping focus on sustainability are going to change the face of large business and small business alike. And so the top 40 or the top 10 even of today will look very different in a post-COVID world and in 10 or 20 years from now. And um, in order for us to keep up, we need to transform this, the exchange and, and make ourselves more technologically advanced. And um, so I, I think that um, those companies that are likely to win in the future are those companies that are able to take hold of the exponential growth trajectory that COVID has created because COVID will speed things along. They will transform the pace at which um, consumers adopt. And um, the advancement is a function of three things. It's 
regulation or the enabling infrastructure. It's the technology push and it's the consumer pull. And so um, we are the enablers in the form of our regulation and our infrastructure. And what we are looking at at the moment is developing a completely transformed platform or capital raising marketplace, um, which will be more of a private placement environment. It'll be a more light touch regulatory environment and more enabling for rather online exponential growth, um, both in the retail sector as, as investors and in the SME and potentially the infrastructure environment and um, potentially looking at tokenized forms of commodity, maybe grain contracts, for example. There are a number of very exciting projects that are bubbling under. They're, they're really, we're really out of the starting blocks and, and at the initiation stage. But the research that we're doing is directing us to the fact that if we rest on our laurels and if we continue as a lumbering giant, which is deeply conservative, very, very top-class world-rated technolo enabling technology, but nonetheless slow to respond, um, we won't be able to keep pace. And so it's really important to think about crowdfunding, to think about the man on the ground. In South Africa, our savings rate is, is close to negative, um, and our participation by the retail sector in the stock exchange is negligible, um, less than 5%. And um, having been in Australia and experienced firsthand how many people self-manage their, their, um, their, their life insurance, their super funds, mm -hmm. and seeing how many retailers have invested in what, um, uh, uh, what was previously seen as the privatization of public enterprises, um, in the late 90s um, in Australia, those those two major trajectories really drove the retail participation rate. And I myself have had um, two personal engagements with retailers. One, one was an Uber driver and the other was um, Solomon, a, um, a server at a restaurant where he heard that we were from the JSC and was saying, I want to invest on the JSC. How do I go about doing that? And, and I just don't think we've done enough in, a, in the enabling technology to create for sustainable and inclusive economic growth in the country. And so we are starting to work on that. I think we've got a long way and there's a lot more that we need to do in that space. We, we needed a, a, a conference last year called Africa Tech Week. And in that conference, we brought out a guy by the name of Salim Ishmael. Salim was the executive dean of singularity so he started out with nasa and google and and yes. sort of he was i don't know if you know Salim. have you met him uh i do yes not personally i've met him but um and i've, I've attended a couple of singularity conferences exceptionally insightful so one of the things he did is he started up an organization called exo and he wrote the book exponential organizations that looked at those that were you know growing exponentially and what he saw from his research is a shift in terms of how organizations get valued. And, and maybe you could set me right here, but his assumption is that organizations previously were valued in terms of their ability to do mergers and acquisitions. 
and that the new way that organizations were being measured is in terms of innovation. So he created an innovation index, the EXQ, where they evaluated the level of innovation coming from the top 100 companies in the US and in the FTSE. And so in and so we did a similar study last year for the JSC Top 40, where we just looked at their, their EXQ, their quotient. And it was really interesting. And what he's basically said the same as you is, is that the, the, the makeup of the Top 40 is going to fundamentally change. And they saw a big shift over the last sort of 50, 40 years of big organizations being in that Top 500 sort of just falling away rapidly now and, and the likelihood of being on the, the top 500 list for 40, 50 years is, is a thing of the past. It's getting down to 20 years and in some cases 10 years because of the rate of, of innovation. I mean, are you seeing that as a big area to, to this, this level of innovation that organizations, this culture of innovation that organizations need to, to bring about? Absolutely, Ralph. Um, I'm seeing that, um, as you say, the life cycle of organizations and their duration and their tenor on whether they're publicly or privately funded um, is reducing substantially. And if we look over the last 15 to 20 years at the top five or 10 organizations um, in by market cap in the world, those 10 15 years ago were dominated by oil companies and by large-scale retailers. Now, um, and a couple of one finance company, I think, now you're seeing it's the, the Googles, the Facebooks, the 10 cents. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I think if we look hence um, and, and, and the, the, the cycle of change, the, the timelines between those, those cycles is, are narrowing because of the exponential growth that technology enables. And I think if we look forward, we're going to see um, biomedical AI-type companies. And and I think for that, you need to look east because China is investing heavily at an institutional and at a a state level in artificial intelligence. They're investing heavily in space technology, in... um, uh, putting up uh, GPS satellites, which will be uh, the controllers of future growth. And so I do think the, the cycles of advancement um, are, are really rapidly growing. I think if we bring that back to emerging markets and to South Africa, many people think that it's the, it's the um, developed world that will drive this. But really, it's those emerging economies, um, so China, India, and, um, and economies that are, 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 are very seriously um, prioritizing artificial intelligence, new technologies like blockchain or Ethereum, et cetera, and who are also introducing them to their general public. And I think one of the advantages that both Africa and emerging markets have is that um, has is that we um, are able to leapfrog legacy technology, and so the cell phone penetration into Africa 
is is growing exponentially and smartphone penetration is growing equally and so i think into africa and in south africa we have a a, a very genuine and very real opportunity to both attract those investments from china and let's not forget that 30% of the largest one of the largest tech companies and most forward thinking tech companies 10 cent is owned by a south african company so that really does shape us the the, the profile of our stock exchange um but i think ultimately when when we think about technology advancement it really comes down to the culture that leaders create to enable that and and um one of the leaders um that i um uh, that i hugely uh, uh, uh value and and respect is the ceo of of microsoft satya nadella and he um he he increased market cap from i think it was around 350 billion in 2014 to over a trillion dollars in 2020 and when they asked him what changed and and what drove that um innovation and that repositioning and the success he spoke about um two things that that made an impression on me and that was really that we must honor our past and celebrate the future and most importantly and this talks to this value that i spoke about that my mom and my grandmother taught me around curiosity and around um you know uh, creativity and learning and that was that we need to change from an organization with people who know a lot to people who learn a lot and and i think that is the the crucial differentiator in creating an innovative culture and and therefore creating an organization that innovates um and you tend to start attracting big thinkers and creative thinkers when you when you have a culture like that yeah i mean i've i've also seen that as well and certainly i'm i'm looking at that um that area about know and learn and it comes from that mindset i don't know if you read the book mindset but it's around the growth mindset versus a fixed mindset and in what we sort of believe can we learn or are we are we born with the intelligence that we have or, or do we believe that if we work hard we can study harder and that's what i see i see a lot of people who are very successful come from very humbling backgrounds but they worked really hard um and they had some mentor either a grandmother or a mother or a, a teacher that sort of helped them and and i think it's it's interesting what you say about the the microsoft ceo because they say he is actually the the business success story of the of the century in turning mm. massive organization like microsoft from a transactional business and very quickly moving to an annuity type business so yeah. doing it in a digital way so i think a lot of leaders should be looking at what he's done and how he's done it i mean you you talk about the east and china it it's funny because my wife is actually half chinese so when i go to the east wither it, it's unusual when but in in south africa we're not seeing that many chinese you go to australia and there are loads of chinese tourists and loads of chinese and so you how do we i mean there there seems to be more chinese in the rest of africa but not so much in in south africa um do you think it takes 
our ability to get outside of our current environment, like you did, to go to somewhere like Australia to understand different opportunities and to see actually that that there's so much. I mean, quite often I see interviews where people say, "Ah, oh, the equity market is down," and you say, "Yes, but in relation to the rest of the world, we're actually doing quite well." It's almost that, you know, having that perspective almost in terms of where we are to the rest of the world. Do you think it helps to to get outside? And see things? Oh, there's no question that internationalizing yourself and whether that's through travel, which is great, but um, but not um, expansive enough, or whether it's via actually going to live in other countries, there is no question in my mind that that creates a growth mode and an ability to innovate and create. And in fact, it's, it's, it's ironic. I, my time in um, Australia really opened me to the opportunities in China and the way of thinking and the technological advances. And I spent some time at Tencent and, um, and at a couple of the others at uh, Baidu, um, which is the, the Google um, for, for China and Alipay. And, and I was profoundly impressed by, um, firstly, the um, advanced thinking, but more importantly, the take-up of, of their technologies by the Chinese population. Um, and so I do think it's incumbent on South Africans to get out there and to go and experience other, other mindsets and new ways of thinking and, and new ways of working. And we can always do that via the internet and through technology. But it's very different to actually having boots on the ground and experiencing that technology. And I think one of Australia's success stories is that in Sydney, 48% of um, their population is first-generation immigrants. And I remember sitting around the Commonwealth Bank table, exec table, in many meetings, I had Indian, um, British, Russian, Canadian, Chinese, Malaysian um, executives sitting around the table, and I maybe had one Australian. And, and I think that the growth trajectory has been built off both the willingness to accept immigrants into the country and therefore grow their population in a very economically active um, uh, way, um, and then also to embrace a new way of thinking. And if South Africa is to play a meaningful role on the continent, we need to open our minds to what's going on technologically and making sure that we're on the front foot. We are doing a lot in that space, but I think there's lots more that, that we can and should be doing. I mean, when I, when I travel generally either to the UK or other areas, I generally come back thinking, wow, it's almost going in a time loop ahead. And you come back and you go, well, I know what the future is going to hold. Did, 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 is that one of the reasons that you took the role? Because you, you, you could see the future in a way? You could you, uh, absolutely. You in China? Absolutely. I, I would most certainly never have, have accepted a role that was a maintenance role and particularly not to move countries um, for such a role and leave my family behind. Um, but um, what I experienced in China was a bright, exciting light of possibility. And what I saw in um, 
how Tencent and Alipay had responded to the SARS crisis, um, which um, gave rise to the very vertical adoption of online shopping and um, general internet behavior in both young and old in China, um, gave, made me excited about where the future, what the future holds. And I, I think if you, uh, if you go to China or if you go to um, India, you will most definitely see um, the incredibly impressive advances in technology and the level of sophistication in the general population in adopting and, and using new forms of technology. So we, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with Britt Lobscher, who's the CEO of Tencent in Africa. Yes. And he was very buoyant in terms of Africa as a growth market. Obviously, he's traveled to to China quite a bit, but he, he was saying that, you know, it really is the next big opportunity because of our young population. And, I mean, listening to you earlier about you know, we being the disruptors, it's almost that, that Clayton Christensen's, that, that innovator's dilemma is, is that our market is um, almost there to take advantage of, of, the, of the opportunities that technology brings us. Absolutely. And I, I think that whole, that whole concept of the, the, youth, um, the youthful demographic in, in Africa is, is genuinely in our favor. You know, I was in, as I said, I was in Bangalore and the adoption rate with the younger population is enormous because more than 55% of Indians are um, under 35 years old. And um, we have a similar, a similar trajectory in Africa. And it's going to be interesting to see how the technology advances across Africa, because China is has a long range of vision and they are prioritizing investment into Africa. They seem to be focused quite heavily on the east of, um, uh, of, of Africa, whereas the US are investing more in the west. And it will be interesting in 10 years from now to, to um, make a comparison between east and west Africa and determine how much of the East, um, i.e. China, has has invested and uplifted um, and advanced digitization across that population relative to um, the West and whether there is a distinction. Um, I think South Africa is, is in a prime position, uh, together with Kenya and uh, Nigeria, to be a gateway into those markets and, and to be a really important enabler and it's really important that we get onto the front foot in um, adopting and, and in enabling those, those new technologies. And I'm, I'm thinking not only of um, the, the sort of advances through a mobile phone, um, but it's, it's much more advanced than that, smart homes, etc. So I, I found it very intriguing to hear a couple of leaders at Tencent who use the mobile phone as their primary mechanism, whether it's for online gaming or for, for online sales. And they were saying they don't see a, a place for the mobile phone in their future. It will all be the Internet of Things. So whether it's, um, you know, something that you put in your eye or a bracelet or your fridge or your light switches, etc. And... So Africa, as, as poverty-stricken as they may be right now, don't have any of that legacy 
and they have the opportunity to to leapfrog right ahead. And they also present with many of the medical needs um, like TB, HIV, AIDS, etc. And um, I think the biotechnology advances. Um, where we would be able to use a retinal scan or, or some injectable to preemptively and proactively determine whether we have cancer. Um, uh, it will be profoundly relevant in the emerging market of Africa. And, and so I suspect the take-up um, will be uh, very, very uh, vertical and, and rapid. Um, and it's it's an exciting time for us um, if we have the appetite and the willingness to go there. I mean, so, some of the things that I'm seeing that with with technology and advancement, we're, we're seeing a lot of um, it, entrepreneurs innovating solutions. Aerobotics is one that's got a lot of funding now from NASPERS. But really what we're seeing is as a lot of these um, countries are over-regulating innovation certainly in biotech and, and other areas and, and also in fintech, where South Africa offers a great opportunity because it's it doesn't have those same um, challenges, but also it's low cost to market and to test products. How do we – so I, I see it as a great opportunity for organisations to, to test or innovate here. How do we get more funding for our entrepreneurs? How do we get more entrepreneurs entering – you know, we've got to – we seem to have a lot of graduates, but we're not necessarily turning and converting those graduates into entrepreneurs. How do you see that? Yeah, and I think there's a really important role to play by both big business and by government. When I was in Bangalore a couple of years ago, um, I, I was firstly impressed by the whole ADAR initiative, which is, is that, that digital identity type solution. Um, which enabled small and medium enterprises to do some very clever things. Um, but I was also particularly impressed by um, a, um, a, a, a collaboration um, that they had between um, public and private sector and also between, um, uh, between um the uh, academics, and they had created some um, absolutely um, incredible um, opportunities for small and medium enterprises to build um, to build solutions. The the organisation is called NASCOM, and um, there were there were some incredible um, ideas that were created in collaboration between academics and young entrepreneurs with great ideas and then you had large corporate organizations backing them now we are looking at the exchange at creating an SME platform we are looking at creating a um, a um, an offering which would provide a combination of education mentoring support um, connectivity um, opportunities to connect with specialists in those industries. And um, we are also looking to start attracting and coalescing um, those larger businesses who are willing to make a contribution to SME ideas and, and innovations. And um, I think ultimately innovation is a function, necessity is the mother of innovation. 
And mm. we have a we have a, an enormous need both in Africa and in South Africa. Um, we have huge levels of poverty. We have huge inequality, and that creates needs for innovative, clever ways of producing new ideas. Um, when uh, we all we all probably know the story of of um, Kenya and and how they they introduced uh, their their digital technology, and it was really during uh, which is in Peza. It was really during a a period of of um, unrest, um, and there were elections happening and um, they had unrest in, in the country and people couldn't get into the city to get their money. And so a, a really smart idea between a telco and, and a, a local organisation used regulatory constraints to their advantage and the, the app went viral. And, and so it just shows that when there's a need there will be an innovative solution that could fill that need. And it really just needs um, a, a bit of financial backing and a bit of support from a combination of big business, academics and um, and government. And so we are looking at um, ideas and, and we are going to be backing the SME uh, environment and equally so the retail um, environment who who could potentially crowdfund and, and support some of these grand ideas. So, I mean, one of the things that's become very clear is that my my confidence um, both in South Africa and the JSE has just gone through the roof from talking to you. And so, what one asks oneself: How can we support what you're doing? How can business? How can leaders? support what you're doing? Because I think that you've got a very strong vision and a very clear outline for the future. And and one of the things is, is obviously not to be too short-termism and thinking for immediate impact, but certainly to look at the long-term impact of what you're doing. How can we support you? Well, I think there are many ways that, that we we can mutually support one another because ultimately anything that we create is is uh, is. is properly connected to the real economy and is is driven to support and and it's grounded in the economy in which we operate so um what we are, are looking at a couple of initiatives that I think is is really important for business to support the first is a private placement platform in the um uh, in the infrastructure environment the second is a, an SME private placement platform and um, there we would look to have businesses willing to invest. We would like to engage with government to perhaps potentially contemplate tax incentives, tax breaks to support the investors that invest in these, in these solutions. There might be regulatory changes that are required to enable the mandates of pensions pension funds um, to invest in some of what, what was previously perceived as, as high-risk assets. Um, and um, ultimately, we need to coalesce between public and private sector. Um, we go on a roadshow once a year to New York. We were planning to, in May, go to, to um, London and then also to, to do a roadshow in Shanghai. Those have been put on hold as a result of COVID, but we certainly would like to stack hands with 
big business and small business alike and with government and to make sure that jointly we put forward a compelling value proposition to the rest of the world because fun there, there's no there's no shortage of capital there's no shortage of funds right now it's really about the pipeline and about the ability to attract those funds from international counterparts into our country so it's it's really for us to convince potential investors to direct their flows to south africa rather than to other emerging market countries or even developed countries um, and so so it's really all about collaboration and and working together and crossing crossing the lines of, of private and public sector for for the good of of the 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 collective and and of the country lena obviously you know topco we we have a number of initiatives in terms of like things like our top woman program future of hr and africa tech week that would love to work with you in terms of bringing that private public sector together as well as smes and academia so i think there's a a, a huge amount of opportunities um we're working with standard bank and our top woman program and looking and i think you know we typically have sort of 800 women that attend that awards and conference women entrepreneurs and leaders but what we're seeing is that um we really need to accelerate growth in the continent and so we're looking at how we can do virtual events that that talk to communities outside of just south africa and africa and and generate that interest and i agree with you i think collaboration and creating that ecosystem is probably the most important thing is is bringing all stakeholders together yes in terms of in terms of africa i mean what what do you see the future of africa how do you how do you see the future in 5 to 10 years well i i think that africa is most definitely a growth node africa is offering a potential growth in the infrastructure space there is an enormous demand for infrastructure investment and um that infrastructure investment is being funded largely either by government in africa or more than 30% by china and and so i do think that the future of africa can be very bright we need to be mindful of the need by investors for policy certainty we need to ensure that um our Uh, our our general institutions are strong that rule of law is strong and that um violent outbreaks are kept to a minimum and i think to the extent that we're able to uh, to provide that level of certainty um i believe that um that there's there's great opportunity we have a young burgeoning growing population um much younger than most other um uh, countries we have a lack of of legacy technology that holds holds one back um and there is an energy and an entrepreneurial spirit about africa and we have a very strong backbone of women who are entrepreneurs and energetic and willing to make a difference and i think those those are vital combinations those are vital components that are necessary to um to grow the the general economy so so my my future for africa my future vision and picture is is bright and and full of growth and and advancement and um technological um adaptation and digitization wow 
I just want to thank you so much for your time and insights and, and I think incredible stories really that, that humanize sort of what the opportunities are. I think from our side, we'd love to invite you to some of our programs and get you involved. It's clear that um, you, you're one of the leaders that's going to take this content to a new direction. We wish thank you all the best of Yes, it's been absolutely lovely chatting to you and, and very insightful questions. Pleasure. Thank you. So um, I'm sure we'll catch up soon and um, all, all the best for the next couple of months. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you so much.